Hello again, everyone. Your host, Dallas Noctegal here. Glad to have you back with me again this week. So, did you leave the conversation last week with noteworthy ideas? But now you're wanting a little practical help in this matter? Well, today's conversation will help with that. It's episode 16 of Bestowing the Brush. Rochelle has been emphasizing in these talks that we've had that brush drawing is not the end in and of itself. It's a means to an end. Here's what I mean by that. I had a friend ask me the other day, Dallas, is there really a right way? I mean, Van Gogh used tiny, short, little brush strokes in his work, and I think it's so beautiful. My answer to her and to all of you listening right now with the same question is this. John Ruskin, the great 19th century thinker, painter, and art critic, wrote a book in the late years of his life called The Laws of Fiesole. In it, he teaches his drawing students on principles in art from the Tuscan masters. He writes, The best painting is that which most completely represents what it undertakes to represent, as the best language is that which clearly says what it undertakes to say. My question then to you is, how are we to have a vocabulary and skill in communicating with words if we don't know our basic alphabet or how to compose thoughts from words? So it is the same with painting and art. Brush drawing is a living means of learning basic movements and technical ability, as well as learning to see things in shapes and forms in a holistic way, especially at a very early age. Let's not forget that Rome was not built in one day. And, to borrow from Ruskin again, I say that all artists are under the laws set forth at first, and then we can be free in our imagination once we have acquired the skills necessary to build. Let's listen in on how we can lay these early foundations of art training through brush drawing. So now that we've talked about some really high-level things here, and we have some more ground under our feet, what things ought the mother keep in mind when leading a brush drawing time with her young child? What would that look like? What are some ways they can tackle this with courage? Well, definitely one of the things that I hear most uh, from people beginning brush drawing is that it is harder than it looks. So, so it's good to really keep a healthy perspective. There's a reason that these strokes were called blobs by Charlotte Mason's teaching students. And, um, you know, just if you think about it, um, even with, with paper sloyd, if you can give it a try first, so you know just what you're expecting or asking of your child, that's one very good thing to do. The other thing to do is when you're just starting out, I always recommend that you date your, your first lesson and keep it so that you can look back and see the progress that you have made and your children can see their own progress as well. Definitely a hallmark of a Charlotte Mason education is that students always, their progress was always measured only against their own. It wasn't in comparison to others around them and it wasn't in comparison to any arbitrary standards or levels that they were to achieve. That's one of the things. The other thing to keep in mind, of course, just like their first pencil strokes aren't going to be perfect, it's what's perfect for them. So just like as, as they learn their, their pencil strokes and they're doing their best effort, that's what 
you're going to expect of your child. So your expectations should be, you know, what we call lowered to your smiling threshold. But mother's expectations as well. If you have my course or if you have a different book that you're looking at, remember that I have practiced these brush strokes over and over and over again. Those were not my very first brush strokes that you see in the course. So, you know, so don't compare it to what you see in the book. So you're always giving your best effort, of course. Charlotte Mason tells us that we cannot commit a greater offense than to maim or crush or subvert any part of a person. So be soft when you're relating to your child regarding this. She talks about how a child lacks a self-conscious, what's called that simplicity of character. That's something that adults, you know, and a child will come into a self-conscious moment but um, adults, we already have it. So no thought of self, I guess. And I think being prepared, you know, take, take a look through your first lesson. Of course, now, something that really struck me that Charlotte Mason said is that she wanted, she wanted to help a mother gain confidence. And that's what I wanted the course to do. I wanted the mother to be confident when it's like, all right, it's time for brush drying. She doesn't have to second guess what it is that she has to do, right? So everything is before her. So the things that the mother has to prepare for are, you know, maybe having paper towels ready, helping the child get some containers of clean water, having the proper brushes. Those ty- those are types of things that a, a mother should be thinking about uh, watching the time. <laughs> those are just kind of the practical things that we think about with brush drawing. And of course, it's always good to have what the goals are before us so that if we do have a hard day, that we don't just give up. So that understanding factor in there that we wouldn't give up when it's hard being there with them. And that I think is true in any subject as well. Yeah. But maybe even just that cumulative, if I made one good one, I can do it again. It's one of the things when Charlotte Mason talks about uh, hope, she says, it is for lack of hope that we do not in patience wait for an end or with assiduity work for it. We want a tonic of hope well and wisely fixed, and we must bring up young people upon this tonic. I think this is what part of that holistic Charlotte Mason education is that we are giving our children tales and stories of people that persevered, um, of great accomplishments, of these high endeavors, she calls them. And she wants us to raise our children living a life of hope and endeavor. And part of that is the children's motto, right? I am, I can, I ought, I will. Having that before the child in the beginning is also quite helpful for starting anything new and brush drawing. Yes, I agree with that. It's always good to remember who we're dealing with and who we are, that, but we're not the explainer of the universe. We can also learn this alongside each other. Do you encourage people to do this at the same time as a child, maybe a young child? The mother can learn alongside her child, or she could take it as mother culture in her own time and then to lead the lessons. Uh, But I think, you know, a lot of times we often see that a a child pick things up rather quickly, right? Of course, for, for the child that's six or seven, they're definitely learning this manual dexterity. Right? through paper spade and clay modeling. It comes in different ways and brush drawing. So they, they have a little, maybe a little bit less dexterity, but they are definitely catching on. Yeah. What must the drawer keep in mind 
when practicing brush drawing? And what if a drawing starts to go sour and the failure factor starts to paralyze? Something that Helen Wicks says in The Parents Review, Volume 41, is she says, art, whether painting, music, sculpture, literature, is great in proportion to the artist's forgetfulness of self and the greatness of his subject. And I think this is really key, is that we have to stop looking inward at ourselves and really enjoy and be caught up with what it is that we're actually painting. Um, And this Charlotte Mason talks about in Volume 2, Parents and Children, on pages 202 and 203, when she discusses humility in not making these self-depreciatory remarks or being... um, unconscious of ourself. She even goes as far to say that we're unable to worship if in the innermost chamber of our hearts we are self-occupied. Now she also uses Christ's example of humility and that he wasn't uh, speaking badly about himself um, and he's our greatest example. So if we can kind of relax and not, um, what is it that Charlotte Mason says? Having our eyes so fixed on Christ that we are not bothered and we don't think small thoughts. We spoke about having a hope to continue. Secondly, can we maybe just relax and enjoy what we're doing? And what we talked about before, we are getting outside of ourselves to really observe this living object of beauty, whether it's a plant or a flower, or if we're painting something from our imagination. In Memories of a PNEU Education, this is an article by Christine Verspandung, who was an actual PNEU student in the modern era, and she wrote a paper available, but she talks about this positive attitude to each child's own level, and it was especially exhibited to her in art. She said that she didn't have a natural aptitude for art, but she was always encouraged to do her best and to improve at her own rate. And because of this, she was able to really enjoy it and be proud of her own accomplishments. I think that this is something that we need to, with ourselves too, not just our children, but we need to progress at our own rate and be happy with our progression, not, you know, not comparing ourselves to others. And again, there's always a new time to do our next painting, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We aren't comparing ourselves to one another. We're just seeking to do our best. What Mrs. Um, Respondent, she goes on to say that there was discipline in the general atmosphere and they were expected to do their best and to learn at their own rate and level and to always try. This actually, this note came in to me today and I asked the mother, just because I knew I was going to be talking with you, if I could share it. Her dear son today had a much more important lesson in brush drawing and that of lesson was of patience and perseverance. She said he's only just started the brush drawing course, and he was struggling with holding the brush and making accurate marks. His nature would be to whine and give up and complain about how rubbish he is at it. And instead, she sat next to him, and she calmly helped him to hold the brush and encouraged him to just try to do, to just do one stroke as best as he could, then another, until she said he was doing them better than not. And by the end, he was smiling and wanting to show his father. Oh. (laughs) 
<laughs> I do. And I also wanted to say maybe our last blob wasn't as perfect as we liked, that our next one might be. And so we always start each stroke with a fresh hope. So we were talking before about you know, brush drawing lessons being the first three years, um, but the students still used brush drawing throughout, throughout every form in the parents' union school. So whether that was doing um, original design or for their exams, making brush drawings of twigs and flowers that they had studied during the term. They were also giving illustrations of nursery rhymes. Um, the older classes were, uh, maybe if they belonged to the art club, they were sending in a page of just straight lines using the brush drawing technique. So brush drawing, even though they were Studying other techniques in art, brush drawing never left the scene. And of course, it was continued to be throughout. Uh, brush drawing was used for the nature notebooks. And Agnes Drury, who we mentioned before, who was a student of the House of Education, and then she went on to, the, she inspected the nature notebooks. She says that the standard to aim at is always to illustrate the notes and to avoid using words to describe what can be better shown with the brush. I just really like that, that, that they felt that you could show so much more about, about a plant than uh, with, those, with those life kind of life-giving brush strokes that captured the character, the essence of the plant, than you could with notes and um, Art Middlecoff in his article of, of Keeping a Nature Notebook in the 21st Century, he discusses the fact that the notes weren't these kind of dry field notes, but they read more like diary entries. Yes, that was very interesting for me to read that. That kind of changed my whole perspective on what the nature notebook was. Then that leads me to think, too, that when you're going to take some notes, you probably need to take a moment to decide what's what's going to be better communicated through my brush versus my notes in writing here. So I guess choosing your implement wisely. Yes, and uh, she also discussed that, you know, if you're drawing something that's not to scale, that you should make a notation of that next to your brush drawing. I have wondered about that. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously there are things that, that we can't draw to scale. Uh, some things we might use magnifying glass if we're studying a moss um, we might use a magnifying glass and be painting that way so we would make a note of that um, she tells us that uh, time should be taken to study the subject and there's a great deal to be noticed about a twig while painting it the width of the stem the stiffness or pliancy of the twig the distance between buds the angle made by bud or leaf with the stem the shape and color of the buds as well as of the twig the old scars of bud scale showing how much the twig grew in a single year. This opportunity for observation is the primary reason for painting and does not detract from the pleasure of putting brush to paper. The more time given to consideration before painting, the better will be the copy produced. So I see an emphasis more on the working of the mind there. We see, some, we see instances where they're drawing in the field the bug kind of hatching out, and that was obviously done in situ, and then other times where they're bringing their specimens in from the field. So I think there's room for both, definitely. None of this is meant to be ever um, 
uh, handcuffs or shackles. All of this is meant to actually provide you with more freedom. It is so important for us to develop a touch and to develop this kind of easy touch with our brush where we can be firm, yet we can also be light at the same time. Um, but you're right, and part of that, you know, so that it doesn't become mechanical is, is to sit and do an original design or think about something you've read and then use your brush to bring that, your imagination, to life on the paper. Mm -hmm, definitely. So I want to talk about some ways that you see geometry and art and drawing interacting. You, you read a lot. And so I know that you've read a lot of geometry and you are producing this wonderful math resource. So I oftentimes read what you've written and think of how poetic it is and how it seems like you have your, you are pretty well-rounded in your reading. So I wondered what similarities you are making connections with there. Dallas, I... I'll speak a little bit, but I'd like to hear what you have to say, too, because I think that you know um, probably more about Ruskin, who was the Lake District's kind of golden boy, and Charlotte Mason refers to him a lot. And um, But Ruskin calls geometry the noble art, and I love that. And Irene Stevens, who was the Ambleside lecturer in mathematics and astronomy under Charlotte Mason, um, and she later becomes the principal of the Parents' Union School. She quotes Ruskin regarding the truth and beauty of geometry. And this is what's referred to in the Great Recognition chapters in Volume 2, when he's discussing the when in the portions from Mornings in Florence. And he says, You have now learned, young ladies and gentlemen, to read, to speak, to think, to sing, and to see. Here is your carpenter's square for you, and you may safely and wisely contemplate the ground a little, and the measures and laws relating to that, seeing you have got to abide upon it, and have properly looked at the stars, not before then lest have you studied the ground first, you might perchance never have raised your heads from it. Geometry is here considered as the arbitress of all laws of practical labor, issuing in beauty hmm. so geometry <laughs> um well in a charlotte mason education charlotte mason believed that small things teach great so from the get-go we have we see paper modeling and carton work or paper sloyd um, then we have practical geometry um we have uh, other art classes um this it goes further on with art appreciation and architecture, not just the picture studies, but now we're going into some the more formal study. Um, I don't think that we can get away from from shape and space or ideas of um, of scale or reflection um, without looking at geometry. Yeah. I mean, it's not just for the mathematician, though. Um, aesthetically, it's there without us realizing it. And I can kind of give you an example of that. When I was a student in St. Petersburg um, at university um, for a year, and on my walk home every day, I would always take this route that took me down this one street that was just so beautiful to me. And 
And so I always loved to walk and I would stand at one end and I would take a few moments to just look before I went on. And the street's name was Rossi. And come to find out, well, Carlo Rossi was an architect, but um, the street was laid out by him as a symbol of classical perfection. They call it the street was exactly as wide as the buildings on each side are high. And the street was 10 times longer than the buildings were high. And then it was lined by these identical colonnades. And so without me ever having studied those measurements or knowing nothing about it, it was so beautiful to me. No, I think just the perception of beauty, it hits us. And sometimes we don't know why. (laughs) And then we might find out later why. But like you said, it doesn't take the mathematician to recognize those principles and to really get joy out of our world that way. And I think we don't have to know the laws of proportion to enjoy the beauty of it. But I do think that we can we can still, even knowing that those laws are there, might give us a deeper appreciation or a deeper appreciation of the creator of those laws. I mean, who holds these fixed laws into place? These are proportions and ratios are found in nature. And I believe Ruskin talks a lot to that. I know the Renaissance artists did, Leonardo da Vinci certainly did. We're talking about the golden ratio and how aesthetically pleasing it is. So we see it a lot in art and in architecture and in music, but it's all there in nature. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful to be in a world that's so much bigger than us. And we just keep thinking God's thoughts after him. He has the infinite knowledge. So I think that through eternity, we will just be discovering new things along the way. Just be awestruck in worship. That's good. That's what it all comes down to right there. I don't think I want to say anything else about Ruskin. That's another episode. <laughs> I'm excited to continue to follow you and what you're doing and see kind of where it takes you. Well, Rochelle, thank you for spending time with us today and for talking out these important things. I look forward to continuing uh, conversing with you later. Thank you for helping us to discover brush drawing as the living art. Thank you for having me, Dallas. And you as well. Well, thank you all for listening in this week. If you didn't hear part one of this conversation yet, go click over to the episode 15. And be sure then to join me again in two weeks for another episode of Bestowing the Brush, which will include thoughts from my first year of nature journaling. I learned a lot and thought I'd bring you along for some reminiscing. In between these podcasts, catch me on Instagram at Bestowing the Brush. I have an IGTV channel there containing prompts and practical helps as well as helpful highlights saved on those little circles on my profile. This week there, I'm talking about your perfect palette with the help of another nature journaling friend, Nicole Handfield. Also, go like and browse around on my Facebook page, which features some different content there. All right, see you later, folks.